compassion is just one part of intuitive eating. And so that's why I created the program that I did was because there isn't very much, there's not very many resources out there that help people start being able to trust the cues that they're getting from their body. Because a lot of those cues are being skewed by unconscious beliefs that they have based on the hard experiences they've had in their life. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. This week, we welcome back to the podcast, Jessica Flanagan of The Loving Diet, and we are going to be opening the can of worms that I have been wanting to talk about and am thrilled, Jessica, with your expertise and experience to talk about orthorexia. We're going to talk about what that means and all the different things about it. Before we do, I want to remind you listeners that this podcast is for general education purposes. And while Jessica is a clinical nutritionist, she is not yours. And so we always suggest seeking appropriate treatment with licensed professionals accordingly. That said, if you do want to work with Jessica, you can book a one-on-one appointment on her website at The Loving Diet and definitely follow her on Instagram at The Loving Diet as well. Welcome back, Jessica. Thank you, Stacy. It's great to be here. So I'm not going to give a formal introduction. We laid out the base for everybody in episode 25. So listeners, if you have not yet listened to episode 25, I strongly recommend that you do that before diving into this show. You'll hear a little more about Jessica's experience and expertise and why I was so enthralled with the work that you're doing specific to compassion at Stanford because disordered eating and the studies and work that you're doing there are so intertwined with the work that we're going to talk about today. And we're also going to kind of relate that back to diets, whether they be, you know, dieting or whether they be restricted elimination diets and all the things in between. So now can you tell me a little more about the work that you're doing there? I so I'm at Stanford. There the Stanford Medical School has an offshoot called the C Care program that Dr. James Doty brought to Stanford. He's a neuro a neurosurgeon and he did it after working with the Dalai Lama and he really wanted to create a program So he did called the Applied Compassion Training. It's an 11-month certification program that asks people to create programs that will better the world in their area of expertise and share it, share their programs of compassion. And you develop it at Stanford within the program, and then you run it. And I have done that. Actually, I developed my program. I ran my program with a control group and I did a study. So I actually have been able to show in my own study that self-compassion increases introceptive awareness and self-compassion scores in people with eating disorders and disordered eating. So it's really, really timely what we're talking about today because I 
really just did a study in it. I love it. I'm so here for it. And I'm excited to see once it's published and available because that is information that so many of us talk about in the world. And, you know, we can point to different scientific articles and kind of relate them all together. But having a study that that shows that in one complete one complete study, I don't want to use the same word, right? Like one complete look all together at how it affects our emotional and physical health, I think is incredible. So I'm excited about that. So are you good if I kind of just jump in? We we laid yeah. so much work last week and listeners, I'm just going to ask yeah, you to continue to be open to learning and, and to keep that perspective that if something is working for you, then this doesn't necessarily apply to you. And at the same time, I have heard from so many people that when we start to talk about disordered eating and orthorexia, there are at least elements of it that a lot of people can identify with. So take what, you know, works for you and leave the rest. But hopefully this is a helpful discussion, if not for you, for other people in your life. Because I know not only does it apply to me, but there are a lot of different people in my life that I can think of that would have positive impact from a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. So one of the things that has been an awakening for me and that you refer to in your article, The Silent Truth, AIP, Restrictive Diets, Disordered Eating and Orthorexia, and I'll put a link in the show notes reference section for everybody, is that these restrictive protocols create a pathway that for me allowed me to believe and promote healthism. And for me, I truly believed that the healthier I tried to be, the more I felt I deserved respect. That it was an extension of a lifetime of disordered eating for me, all rooted in fat phobia. And I truly felt like if I exercised enough, if I ate clean enough, then people wouldn't judge me or they would shame me less. And hearing myself say that now, I realize how very harmful that was because we are all always worthy of respect. And I think it's critical as part of that foundation and that core belief that we talked about last week that we explore this idea of how we can work to improve ourselves, to want to be our best selves, which includes health. Also, we need to be aware of things that we might not intentionally be participating in, like healthism, classism, racism, and then how that shows up in our lives in different ways as it relates to disordered eating and ultimately orthorexia in order to kind of prove and participate in these isms that can be so problematic. Um, And I want to, I want to kind of share some quotes from this article, but I also want to give you a chance to kind of speak to this because it's, it's a huge, it's a, it's a huge opening for here on the show. And I I want to give you a chance to, to speak to it before we dive into also what you wrote about it. This topic is incredibly important because whether you're eating mindfully and intuitively, or you're eating a, a prescriptive diet that is working for you, the biggest thing that stands out is being able to listen to your body. So no matter how you're eating, we want to be able to listen to your body. 
and interpret those signals properly and correctly. And really this conversation, I think we're, we're going beyond just scratching the surface. We're, we're looking at an emerging body of research that is going to change how we determine happiness through eating. And I think that's an important topic. Absolutely. And I think there is already a science that we've shared on the show that we know to be true when it comes to things like how important food is for culturally our happiness and awareness, right? Like we've looked at things like how important spending time with others and sharing food with others is for us as humans, which has biologically been a part of our lives for a very long time. And so I think, you know, the expansion of that in terms of practical application and how we choose to think about ourselves and how we eat and how we live is really relevant. And I'm, I'm grateful that that work is being done especially because there's not much profit off of it, right? Like what we're telling people to do is to stop buying into diets and to stop buying into supplements they don't need. And that's not uh, profitable for a lot of people. So it's difficult to get those studies in. So I'm grateful for the work that you and others are doing towards that. Um, So I do want to share some of the words from this article and give you a chance to kind of expand on what they meant and what you've seen and both as it relates to the clients that you work with and the work that you're currently doing, the study results and that kind of stuff. So one of the first things that I read that kind of stood out to me was that the autoimmune paleo and restrictive diet communities continue to trivialize the significance and prevalence of disordered eating with their own movements. I, I want to first kind of thank you for being willing to say that and also to say that that is absolutely something that I have seen. And I want to remind our listeners that if they have not seen it, it doesn't mean that it's not happening, right? Our own lived experiences are different than what someone else might be experiencing. And I can validate that it is happening because I have seen it and I want to put that out there before you kind of dive in, because I think it's important to say that it doesn't mean that it's everybody's experience. And there are some in the community, I can think of many who talk about this. And I can think about many who say that this diet is so helpful for so many, how could we possibly, you know, associate it with disordered eating? And I think both can be true. And it's that's a hard nuance to explain to people. And I I wanted to give you the chance to do that. Well, disordered eating is often triggered by high stress and transitions in life as our eating disorders. And if we look at the people who decide to go on autoimmune paleo, I would say that it's a pretty high stress. Doctors haven't been listening to you. It took you years to get a diagnosis. You, you, you want to get your old life back. That's a high stress issue that's presenting to people. And it's a huge transition as well. So when we just look at the normal risk factors for disordered eating, they're there. And also hormones, hormonal transitions. More women have autoimmune disease than men, and we are more susceptible to autoimmune disease during hormonal transitions. But we're also more susceptible to disordered eating and eating disorders during hormonal transitions as well. So when we look at the risk factors, they're there. 
and they're undeniable because they've been shown in research. But we also have to remember that we all, any, anyone who's challenged wants to just get back to normal. We just want to get our life back. We want someone to say, it's going to be okay. Here, this, try this. And that's not wrong either. So I just kept seeing that these things kept coming out in my own clinical practice with AIP, lots of binging, lots of calorie restriction, restriction, a lot of eating AIP-approved foods to cope with stress, and then a ton of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame if they ate a non-AIP food, if they ate too much of an AIP-approved food, or if they went fell off the wagon, as they would say, and they just ate a regular paleo food, there was a ton of shame and grief around that as well. And that's, again, my clients really started to teach me about this. I can think of that being an example when I went on my first Whole30. So not even related to autoimmune, but related to kind of a paleo challenge. And I had been doing it probably about four days. I was in the phase of what they describe as being like that low dip. And I have my own opinions about what that dip is now. But at the time, I was in a very not good place. My mental health was suffering because my brain wasn't getting the glycogen that it needed. And I had tea. I had just a cup of tea. And then I later looked at the bag and there was soy lecithin in the tea. And I remember breaking down. I was in the work kitchen, like in the open space at the office. And I just started crying because I was like, even as hard as I'm trying, no matter what I'm doing, I just ruined it. And I have to start over the rules of a whole 30 were if you did one thing that wasn't compliant, you had to start completely over again. And I just was like sobbing because I was miserable and I was unhappy. And I was like, and now I thought that I was doing something good by having a cup of tea and I just ruined it. <laughs> The amount of judgment that people I saw in my client base towards themselves for being able to either adhere or a judgment about being able to not adhere, I'm good if I adhere and I'm bad if I don't, really is dysregulating to your nervous system and to a lot of people's nervous system. And Stacey, I mean, I did the same thing, you know, giving up cream in my coffee 13 years ago was the hardest thing one of the harder things I've done around food. And I remember just like, why can't you just pull it together? Jessica It's just cream. Just your health is worth it. You're worth it. Being there for your daughter is worth it. I mean, I had a whole script that I said to myself to try to snap me back into line. And what I realized is, is that it's not a sustainable long-term. Yeah. And I think the phrase that you used in the article that really resonated on this perspective is the idea that people are suffering as a result of their journey. And when they share that with people, they hear it's you, it's not the diet, right? The diet isn't making you suffer. It's you aren't either doing it right, or you're not, you, you don't have enough talk tracks the way you were talking to yourself or whatever. And that leads people to feel really marginalized and invalidated. And that is so harmful for our physical and emotional health. I think the other thing that kind of really 
relates to this for me is this idea or the phrase that we use, you can paleo hard enough, right? Like you're, you're just not AIPing hard enough. And if I think about that phrase, when it relates to curing cancer, for example, it sounds preposterous. You cannot cure cancer with AIP or paleo, yet we expect that it will be a magic bullet for so many other things. But the opposite is true. We can paleo and AIP too hard. We can create stress in our system from the simple act of doing it. We can overly restrict our food to cause undereating, which is something many people do on AIP and is something that, you know, Sarah and I have talked about for a very long time, like they'll try to do it and restrict carbohydrates and fruit and all these other things as well, right? There's, there's this propensity for under eating, then creating other hormone issues in addition to the stress that's being caused. And when people seek guidance for this, they're told you're not doing enough. So I'm wondering if you could share the story that you had with your client that was this wake up call for you. Cause I think you have a very distinct moment where you kind of like light bulb moment. And from there, everything changed. The one that stands out the most to me was it's been nine years, I think since this call. So I've been really working on this for a while of the, how to help people struggling on restrictive diets. And it was a woman who started AIP and she set up the appointment because she just could not do organ meat and bone broth. And she started crying on the call. And I, at first I was like, I didn't know what was, you know, happening because she, it, it, you know, started so quickly in our appointment and she had really just been holding this suffering in. And she said, I, I was fully, I'm fully prepared for you to tell me that I can't do AIP, that I have to just stop and I can't do it because I'm not willing to eat organ meat and bone broth. And I, I, it, it stopped me. And I was like, well, of course you can do AIP. You don't have to like bone broth and organ meat. And she's like, you mean you're not going to tell me that I can't do it if I can't do those things? And I said, I'm not going to tell you that you cannot do AIP because you don't like the taste of those things. You are allowed to do it exactly the way that works for you. And that was the first time when I started to see that this there's a rigidness and a dogma that was coming along with this. And, and I think that people have really good intentions, wrote books, had blogs, podcasts. I mean, people really, their hearts are all in the right place. There was something about the execution of all of this and all the community building that got built that I think sometimes sent the wrong message and people started second guessing themselves. They started to not trust themselves to do it the right way so that they could find the healing that they were looking for. There was, you know, this story laid out in the article that we linked in the show notes. And I think if for someone if this feels like it's resonating for you, I would definitely read that article because there is an experience there that I know for me was really helpful in terms of validation to kind of like read about and hear your perspective, Jessica, as a health provider. I think, you know, that sense of relief even now to me 
years later as someone who feels like, you know, I've healed from these sort of experiences and feelings that I've had, I don't think you can ever have enough validation, right? Like you can yeah. never feel enough that someone says you were right. <laughs> you know, your, your feelings were valid, at least for me. I'm an Enneagram eight. I always want people to tell me that I'm right. So, and I will say too, like as someone who's been a leading voice in this community myself, while I cannot speak for Sarah, I do feel confident in saying that hearing this is horrifying. We never want anyone to feel that way. And I, I I know too that a lot of these groups are run and moderated by people who, you know, aren't necessarily the leaders in the community, aren't people with medical or scientific backgrounds, and whose job they feel it is to protect the goal of the group, which is to promote, you know, whatever that dietary thing is, right? And so it's it's hard for me to hear that when she went to this group to ask for help, looking for that validation that you ultimately gave her, like what she got instead was a threat to be kicked out for questioning. And yeah. this is not an isolated incident. And it does compound the trauma and the stress around the experience that someone is having. And so instead of feeling that relief and having allowing the nervous system to calm down, it it gets worsened, right? Like there's a traumatic experience associated with it. And then it's that much more difficult to overcome. And so I know so many of us, Sarah and myself included, have experienced the paleo police, right? Like someone telling someone, you can't do that. Like, well, Last time I checked, I'm the only one in my body. <laughs> Last time I checked, you aren't like paying my bills or whatever it is to tell me what I can and cannot eat. And so like even my mom can't tell me what I can and cannot eat today, you know, <laughs> and I'm just like. I am so dang sorry for the people who have had this experience because that was never any of our intentions and everybody deserves better. And that was not helping them heal in any sort of way. And I, I think too, I, well, I know that that has been the case for you to realize how important it is to kind of acknowledge and validate these experiences that people have had and serves as an act of part of their healing. You've described that, you know, in the conversation you had with this woman. And I think, was also, and it allowed you in that moment to then have the realization of the emotional and psychological toll that those restrictive diets were having on individuals and the impact that that then has on their health has been part of this journey that you've been working on in the nine years since. I'm wondering if you can talk more about the hundreds of clients who in different emotional states, or as you refer to it as kind of generalized stress, who, you know, expressed these feelings of abandonment and estrangement from the world around them, whether it be from the community that they thought they were a part of, from their family, because now they're no longer participating in those things that, you know, was part of their family life. Like there's so many elements of this. How do you often see that come up for your clients and how, how do you navigate that? It, well, for some people, it comes up as PTSD. For some people, it comes as they evolve into disordered eating. For some people, they just quit everything. They're, some develop a mistrust. So it really manifests in different ways. 
And I think that the big thing that we're looking at here, though, is, is that we're the magic bullet theory. You know, we, we all want the magic bullet. And AIP was a lot, you know, it appeared that it promised that at the beginning, but we didn't know what we didn't know, as you have said. And now we are understanding the science and the research and the, and how we can find root cause more effectively. And I'll say here too, that magic bullet is something that we're going to keep seeing. So now if we're not going to have the, if the magic bullet isn't going to be in restrictive diets, it's also not going to be an intuitive eating or mindful eating. Because really, I think that the, what I'm, my message is that you're the magic bullet. Your ability to navigate hard things and build emotional resilience and look at all of the places you've decided something about yourself that isn't true and you clear that up, that's the magic bullet. So from my perspective, all of these restrictive diets or even, like I said, intuitive eating are really ways for us to learn something incredibly valuable and useful about ourselves. And I had to do that as a clinician when I was going through all of this to say, wait, I think Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> we have a big problem with the AIP diet. And so, and now I'm here talking about it. I love that you incorporated all of these other things that, so for example, intuitive eating as also being associated with this, because I do feel like what we see is, well, first of all, culture has also played a huge part in having us believe that we need to jump from one diet to the next to the next, because if we, for example, you know, did low carb and it didn't work for us, okay, now we're going to do low fat, because once you realize that it's no longer keeping the weight off, they have to sell you something else, right? And so I do think that a lot of us, it's ingrained in our behavior from what culture has created that we go from, okay, well, this thing didn't work for me and it created maladaptive behaviors or, you know, feelings that weren't positive for me. So what's the next thing? It's called intuitive eating and this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And if I don't do it exactly like this, then it's a problem. And I think that it's really important what you're saying. And I hope people hear that the solution is within ourselves and that's the hardest thing, right? It's, it's actually way harder that that's the solution verse, we'll just try this other thing and then, you know, do these three, th these three steps and go see this person and take this test and you get a check mark, you're done. Like, unfortunately, that's not as simple as it is. And we have to use both science, as you've talked about the testing and all these things, as well as emotional wellness techniques. And there are scientifically backed emotional wellness techniques. We know we've talked on the show before about how important, you know, breathing and stress management and sleep and all these things are for our help. And that is incorporated into that emotional well-being. They all allow our systems to calm down and for us to kind of like make progress in working through some of the things, whether they're the ACE trauma that we talked about, or whether it's our own stress about our current life situations, it's so important in terms of the work that we do. This podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley. 
I've worked hard to walk us away from diet culture, so know that when I share about a brand with paleo in it, it is because it is simply the best. I personally use and love the quality, safety testing, and clinical studies to support the validity of all their claims. And when I traded coffee for smoothies last year, it was a game changer for my health. I love adding their organic super greens powder. Most green powders, yes, including the name brands you're thinking of, contain dangerous levels of heavy metals and cytotoxins. Paleo Valleys is the only one I know of that is tested and does not. Plus, it doesn't include any cereal grasses such as wheatgrass, barley, oat, or rye, all of which I avoid as someone with celiac. Those 23 superfoods are dehydrated into an energizing powder that gives my digestive tract something it loves. Six grams of prebiotic fiber, enzymes, and beyond just the greens, there are things like ginger, lemon, sprouts, turmeric, and beets. I genuinely feel amazing with it and add it with their 100% grass-fed bone broth powder to my smoothies. I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention the two supplements that I take and love from them, the Organ Complex and their Essential C Complex, which have more bioavailable antioxidants and are more absorbable from the whole food forms they use, not made from synthetic or corn-based sources like most vitamin C supplements. I love taking them when I travel or if I'm feeling sick to support my immune function since our bodies burn through vitamin C when stressed. Try Paleo Valley yourself at paleovalley.com slash thewholeview and use code thewholeview15 for 15% off to maximize your savings. Again, that's paleovalley.com slash thewholeview, code thewholeview15. Public service announcement. The 30% off code is ending at the end of September. If you have not yet tried Beauty Counter, now is the time. Choose Stacy Toth at checkout so I can help you. And as the weather changes, so does the need to modify your skincare. You might want to listen to episode 431 for more on the science of why your skin might get dry and what nutrients and products are best for the colder seasons. And if you need help navigating your own unique skin needs, I just launched a free skincare guide that I will be happy to customize for you. Just email me stacy at realeverything.com to get yours. You'll be supporting my women-owned small business and voting with your wallet by choosing a certified B Corp whose mission is to get safer products into the hands of everyone through health protective laws and get yourself 30% savings with code CLEANFORALL30 at beautycounter.com slash Toth. It's just like any other website and then choose me, S-T-A-C-Y-T-O-T-H at checkout to use code CLEANFORALL30 for 30% off your first order. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed, which is where I personally recommend posting your resume as well as posting job opportunities if you're in search of quality candidates. I personally got my big career break back in ye olden days through Indeed, and I wish that they'd had all the time-saving tools that they have now back then. Their virtual interview options save you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. After using Indeed's virtual interviews, most employers said it saved them days of hiring time, according to Indeed Data US. 
Finding great talent doesn't have to be a second job. You can hire faster and better with Indeed. Indeed is the number one source of hires in the U.S., according to Talent Nest. And 73% of U.S. online job seekers search for jobs on Indeed each month, according to Comscore. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data U.S., In the minute I've been talking to you, 16 hires were already made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. So Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit indeed.com slash whole view to start hiring now. Go to indeed.com slash whole view. Indeed.com slash whole view. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, I'll say too that there's like three things people can do. One is that they can take the scale of body connection test. It's free online. It's a body awareness test. So it will help you understand what your own level of awareness is. People can take the ACE test, also free online. And people can take the introceptive awareness test online. So everybody can now have at their fingertips the level for which they are able to listen to their body. Because people who are highly traumatized do not do well with intuitive eating. Because intuitive eating requires you to know how to listen to your body. Autoimmune paleo requires you to know how to listen to your body. So does mindful eating. So does the Mediterranean diet. So does a gluten-free diet. They all require us to know how to listen to our body. And intuitive eating, while some of it emphasizes skills to be able to listen to your body. It is not inherently a approach that builds skills of body trust. That is something that happens on the inside of us by looking at all of our core beliefs, like you've mentioned, and looking at our the way that we handle stress and looking at our outlook and what it is that we believe about ourselves and our life. So I think that is important here. And also, this isn't being talked about anywhere because intuitive eating and mindful eating is the next paleo. And what I'm seeing is is that people are struggling there also. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People constantly are like, well, I have a difficult time with this for X amount of reasons. And I see so many people talk about, well, you still are restricting in your mind. You're still, you know, doing these kinds of things. And it's like, yes, can we just get to the, the real root, which is why and how are people having this mindset, which I think is a a great kind of bridge to this idea of orthorexia that you talked about at the beginning. So we, we talk about this idea of orthorexia, but I think that it's important that we define it. I wonder if you could give us what in your experience, both clinically and from the education perspective, you define as orthorexia and how one might be able to identify it in themselves or a loved one? Well, you can look at orthorexia. It's called the OR2 scale, and you can take the orthorexic test. 
The other thing to know is that, and you can do that through your therapist, you can do that online, but the other thing is, is, what is what's orthorexia? It's a behavior that limits your choices and it restricts food out of a sense of being in control and for health reasons. So orthorexia is a form of disordered eating. It is estimated to affect nine to 65% of the population. So statistically, we don't really have our hands on accurate numbers, but it's anywhere between nine and 65% of the population have a form of disordered eating, orthorexia being, being one of them. Yes. That's a, that's a huge like, variance. The variance. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And some of the symptoms of disordered eating are binge eating, calorie restriction, eating to cope with stress, eating to deal with emotions. And it is not an official eating disorder. And it's so it's less severe and it has a lesser degree of symptoms than an eating disorder, but overall affects a lot more people. And when I started looking at orthorexia three or four years ago, there were very few studies because it's not diagnosable. But what I've seen, so for instance, here in 2022, there was a study that came out that looked at 57 different studies of restricted diets to treat diseases. And what they found is is that of those 57, four out of the eight studies showed that if you followed a diet for digestive issues like IBD or food intolerances, you were at a higher risk for orthorexia. So we're starting to see that there's, when you go on restrictive diets, it's not just you, it's not just about not being able to adhere to the diet, that people have a higher risk for orthorexic behavior. And you share about something that you call healing diet orthorexia, and you kind of characterize it and outline six stages. And I think it was really helpful for me to kind of like see that in terms of my own processing and lived experience. I'm wondering if you can share more about that. Well, it's really just the process that we sort of go through, humans go through of the discovery of, wow, this thing is going to help me. I'm so excited. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Yes, I'm on board. I have lots of energy to do it. And then you get on it and maybe you stumble. Maybe it doesn't work out the way that you thought it would. Maybe you start questioning yourself. You know, maybe you're challenged in some way. And then it can be a depressive state of, depression and anxiety, like, wow, I thought this thing was going to save me. And now it's not, it must be me. Did I do something wrong? You know, what did I cause my illness to come on? And, And then we start to do the deeper work, which is to look inside of ourself and start unpacking a lot of the things that are the core beliefs that we have and look at some of the experiences that maybe we had caused our trauma. Now, I didn't go through it exactly, you know, because I don't have that list in front of me, Stacy, that you were talking about, but I feel like that's a good overview of the disappointment that sometimes we can feel when we start something and we really, 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 really hope it'll work because we just want to be past. We want to put it behind us. We want to be past it. 
Yeah, I think the one thing that I would mention is, so it's motivation, frustration, recommitment. That was the thing that really resonated Mm -hmm. for me because that's where I see people get stuck in cycle is that, you know, they would kind of go through one, two, and then realize, oh, I need to dial it in more. I need to double down. I need to, you know, do more. Maybe moving into things like FODMAP and histamine intolerance and like these kinds of, okay, I'm going to do both AIP and keto and I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like adding this and this and this and this. And, you know, I see that so often that I really was like, "Uh uh-huh, I see that as recommitment, right? Like I just keep doubling down. And so we keep going through the cycle. Eventually, though, if we go to stage four of depression and the realization that it's not working, it's overwhelming, it's not sustainable, whatever it might be, then kind of obsessing about what does that mean, those foods and all these things, at least for me, that's kind of where I lived for a really long time. And then the stage where I feel like I'm in now that you described of relief, finally kind of coming to terms with this is what it is, acceptance. And then what am I going to do for myself? And for me, I didn't do a stool test, but <laughs> I did do a lot of um, testing. And what I said was, okay, if I put everything that I have like learned and been talking about aside for the past couple of years. And I tell myself like, these are my test results. What is the, you know, prioritized thing that I need to focus on for me? It was seeing that my adrenals, my high cortisol was causing inflammation and I had long COVID, which had spiked my inflammation. And I was like, I am never going to be able to get this inflammation down if I don't get my cortisol to be regulated because my body is constantly thinking it's got to fight something and it's never going to heal itself if it's in fight mode. And so I was like, this is the thing that I need to focus on. I need, this has nothing to do with food right now in my mind. Like this is not about restrictions or whatever. Like, what do I need to do? Okay. What, you know, what are the things that link to cortisol and really focusing on those? And it, it did include giving up caffeine, but that was one element. It also included like eating more food. I needed to eat breakfast, which I hadn't been doing. And when I got tired, I needed to sleep and I needed to create good, you know, circadian rhythms for myself. I needed to not take every stress so personally. And that was the hardest thing. And the thing that made the biggest difference and that had nothing to do with food and lifestyle, right? Like being able to regulate my response. I'm such an empathetic person having four teenagers, <laughs> two that are neurodiverse and another who has severe trauma all in my home. Like that was a lot for me to be holding in and taking on all the time and feeling like it was though their feelings were my feelings and I owned them and all these things. Like that was a lot of work for me to be able to say, like, I have to let go of that. I can't control that as hard as I try. Like I can't, what I can do is be supportive. What I can do is, you know, the best that I can as a parent. And that's me and my personal lived experience. That's not going to be something obviously that everybody can relate to. But I say that because I think it was so important to the change that I had in my health of being able to then get my cortisol down, of seeing that my inflammation was going down, which then caused different things that were uh, affected by my inflammation. So for example, my 
cholesterol had gone up and I couldn't figure out why, but it started to go up when I got long COVID. And I was like, okay, this is related to inflammation. This isn't about food. I'm not going to control my cholesterol with food. I'm going to address the inflammation that's driving it up. And so And I did work with a medical professional to test and to see these numbers. And I think that, you know, sharing that information, I hope, is helpful for people. I feel like sometimes it can feel overwhelming. Like, I don't even know where to start. You're talking about so many things. I can't give up coffee. That's like the one thing I enjoy in life. And I think this is where working with someone who has a base in compassion, like Jessica, or in working with other medical professionals who understand more than just kind of either the base functional medicine template, as you called it, and more than just the base standard medical treatment. What you need is someone who can kind of look at overall what's going on with you and say, you know, I think you may benefit from therapy. Do you have, you know, feelings about X, Y, or Z? If you find yourself crying pretty often, right? Like whether it's about the tea that you had that soy lecithin was in, or whether it's because, you know, you just had a, what did you call it? Oral intolerance. And Mm -hmm. now that food is no longer something you can eat and you're crushed by that. Like those are all signs in my eyes that we need to do more, that there is something whether it's healing diet orthorexia or whether it's just disordered eating or whether it has nothing to do with dieting and it's about, you know, other elements of yourself that need to heal, like those are all red flags for me. Well, and we also want to separate practicality here, which is food is practical. If you have a gluten sensitivity, not eating gluten is really practical. A lot of the things that we're talking about that people are encountering that are hard are the effects of resilience and the lowering of self-trust and the lowering of the ability to interpret body cues, that introceptive awareness, all of which are informed by chronic pain, stress, trauma. So introceptive awareness is our ability to understand and respond appropriately to the patterns of internal signals, but it's also really dependent it really is affects emotional processing. So we bring all of these things in when we take care of our health. If we see something and we say, let's just use Mediterranean diet. Oh my gosh, this is, I'm going to do the Mediterranean diet. It's not very restrictive. It might help my cholesterol. So we bring in all the practical pieces, which is, wow, I'm not going to, I might not be hungry. I can eat diversity. It's my doctor recommended it. Those are all the practical things. But then we bring in the, the way that we each have emotional processing and Interceptive awareness is incredibly important for eating disorder symptoms and also for disordered eating and orthorexia. And these are the things that we're not looking at as we put people on these diets. I wrote an article that said, should we have a warning label when we go on restrictive diets? You know, and again, I got so much flack for it, but it's like, no, we, we know now that when we go on restrictive diets, that there's a higher chance that you might get orthorexia. We, we know that now. And so we want to separate the practical piece and then look at our individual path that we have, how much trauma. So for instance, if you have a child who has been through a lot of traumatic situations, their interpretation 
of being able to manage trauma in their body is going to affect how well they can determine if they are hungry or they are full. And so that's important if you go on an intuitive eating plan. And it's also important if you're paleo or keto. And these are the things that I feel like are important and they are within reach for everybody now to be able to understand how to interpret those signals. I mean, my, I created my six week class to help people develop self-compassion skills because self-compassion increases interoceptive awareness. It helps people become more in touch with their body. It increases body trust. It also helps people be able to transform their core beliefs. Not everything does that, for instance. I mean, you would think that intuitive eating increases that interoceptive awareness, but it, it is one of the core principles of intuitive eating, but it is not built upon compassion. It's, compassion is just one part of intuitive eating. And so that's why I created the program that I did was because there isn't very much, there's not very many resources out there that help people start being able to trust the cues that they're getting from their body. Because a lot of those cues are being skewed by unconscious beliefs that they have based on the hard experiences they've had in their life. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. And I want to say to those people who are identifying with what you're saying or some of the experiences that we've mentioned that you are not alone and it might feel that way because it's not being talked about and it's taboo in whatever group you may be a part of, but we see you and what is happening to you is real. We believe you. Yeah. It's, it's really important. And I think that that is the, the basis of, you know, where a lot of autoimmune people kind of hit a wall is People don't believe that what's happening to them is real. They don't believe them. They, you know, simplify and brush them off. And whether it is true because they've, you know, that is true to them or it's true universally, it does not make a difference, right? Like your personal experience is yours and it your feelings are valid regardless. And I think that that's really, I am hopeful that as we move forward as a society, that more people will begin to understand that because it is super essential. And I think was the basis of a lot of my struggles for so long. And one of the things that, you know, my husband and I are working on in our marriage is when I started realizing that what I really needed more than anything was validation and what I was getting was everything. But now I start to say when we're having a conversation and that's what I need is like, pause. What I need from you right now is for you to say that you hear me and that my feelings are valid. That's what I need. And those words are so powerful because even though I've told him to say them, <laughs> like <laughs> him saying to me, Yes, I hear you. You feeling like me abandoning the dishwasher is me assuming that you will take care of it. Even though we both know that he has ADHD and he saw a squirrel and got distracted and didn't mean to make yeah. me the dishwasher fairy. Like those feelings. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's as simple as that, right? Like of the dishwasher are very, very real and the basis of a strong marriage or not. And so if you think about that perspective of how important that is that small factor in those words 
in our relationship and the impact that that can have, imagine those thoughts and feelings in your life from medical professionals and different people around you. And it's why now in my 40s, after a lifetime of restriction and dieting and disordered eating, I'm finally able to find ways to nourish and love myself, to improve my health in a measured scientific way without dogma or rules of restriction. And I, I do wholeheartedly believe that it has so much to do with the emotional healing and growth that I've done. And I think the work that you're doing, Jessica, is so incredible towards helping others identify that. And I do also want to acknowledge, and I know we talked about this in the last episode, that, you know, you you were a part of the AIP or restrictive diet movement as I was, right? I've published three books and I definitely feel like I had a part to play in problems for people. And I feel very badly about that. And I'm trying to do better now that I know better. And I think what is fantastic about the work that you do is you truly believed that that was the answer to your sister's problems, which I think it's so cool that you have a DNA replica who has different experiences physically from you. And I think that that is in and of itself an incredible example of science towards these things being lived experience and not just genetic. And that, you know, you thought that what you're doing was helping people. And then when you learned more, you shared and and you did more. And I think that's what, you know, we're all trying to do in our lives is whether, you know, you listener are sharing things that you're learning with the people in your lives, or those of us who are educating on a broader scale, like everybody, most people, I won't say everybody, most people have the intention of wanting to help others. There are some I'm fully convinced that really are out to help themselves and their their pockets or the bank accounts. But most people genuinely are trying to help others, whether that intent is coming across in the work that they're doing or not. And I think that is kind of important to, to say, which is that you know, the work that you've done, not everybody has done. The work that I've done, not everybody has done. And so it's it's led us to where we are today sharing. And hopefully people are listening and learning. I know the, the listeners here are, right? And that's all that we can do is to kind of spread this knowledge so that we can all become better for it. And that's not to say as a gluten intolerant person, I don't eat gluten. Like that doesn't mean that I I don't feel that I'm in a restrictive diet because I've come to terms and acceptance with the fact that like, I don't feel good. I don't like the risk that it creates in my body. I am choosing not to eat it. And it is not something I stress about or think about. Like literally, except if I'm walking through the mall and I smell Aunt Annie's pretzels or Cinnabon, never think about eating gluten. And I'm sure those things wouldn't taste the way my brain tells me they would. But it, it is interesting to have that mindset and to feel so free of that gluten and then to think about some other foods that I'm still working on and to realize, oh, I need to have the same emotional detachment from those foods in order to continue this growth journey that I've been on around healing my own disordered eating and orthorexia. Yeah. And I think you said, you know, foods I'm working on because I'm, I'm finding, you know, 30,000 studies have been published about self-compassion. And when I'm finding, when I look at it through this kinder lens is that it's really about the judgments we develop about how we're relating to food. And that it's 
okay if you don't eat gluten. It's okay if you want to be carnivore. It's okay if you want to be AIP. It's okay if you want to eat everything. That the Where we get stuck is if we create or develop a judgment against ourself about how we're doing it. And that doesn't mean that we don't include practicality. Practicality is incredibly useful because it can keep us out of the hospital. It can prevent flares. It's the judgment pieces that are inside of us that will keep us locked. And so that I think is how I sort of see it from the point on where I teach my clients, look at how you might be judging yourself because that's something you can work with and you have free medicine inside of you built into your heart is the only thing that can unlock a judgment. And so that's something that's really cool that everybody can practice and they can learn how to do for free by just being kind to themselves. And I think removing those judgments about ourselves also reduces the amount of healthism that we might be unconsciously incorporating into our lives. I know that that was the case for me, right? Like my own fat phobia, that is my own fear and shame around living in a larger body led me to believe that if I could prove that I was healthier than others, then I was less deserving of shame and judgment. And I want to repeat that everyone is always worthy and entitled to be not shamed and not judged regardless of the efforts that they're making, the health that they have. I mean, if if we think about this from the perspective of a baby born with leukemia, would we judge or shame that child? No, you know, like we need to treat ourselves the same way. And even if we think that, you know, we've gotten cancer because of an environmental exposure, living in judgment and shame about, well, I shouldn't have worn aluminum deodorant for 30 years of my life. Like, what good is that doing? You don't know that that was the thing that caused it. And all you're doing is creating more stress in your system from that perspective. So I think if we apply those same mentalities to the way that we think about food, the more we open our own world to the compassion that you speak about, Jessica. Uh, So I always like to leave our listeners with something positive. We've talked about compassion. Are there other actionable suggestions that they can implement to improve their own well-being as it relates to today's specific topic? I know we talked about this a little bit last time, but I think, you know, as it relates to kind of letting go of some of these limiting beliefs and learning to have compassion and grace with themselves, where would you suggest they start? I'd suggest taking the self-compassion short form scale test, which is online, and it'll give you, it's very short, takes five minutes, and it'll really give you an understanding of how kind you are to yourself now. The other thing I'd suggest is taking the interoceptive awareness scale test, which is also free online, to really get an understanding of how well you listen to your body And then the third thing I would say is, is ask yourself, well, first of all, think about who you really love in the world. Who's your, who's your person. And if the person that really deeply cares about you were to be standing next to you right now, 
how would they treat you if they knew you were struggling with something that was around health or food or diet? And ask yourself, do I ever treat myself the way that this person who deeply cares for me treats me? Which is exactly what self-compassion is. It's treating yourself as a friend would. And just reflect on that for a moment to see if like, oh, wow, there's some room there for me to be kinder to myself and that there's no wrong decision. Nobody, I mean, we, we, nobody can make messes up. We're no wrong decisions, just learnings, wisdom building. I love the line that you have on your website. It says, it's not about the food. It's about each person's relationship to healing. When we focus on that, healing happens. And I think that is a great summation of all the things that we've talked about today. I know that feels nebulous and not actionable, but I I promise you listeners it is. And we'll put a lot of links in the show notes as well as Jessica. I'd love if you could share a couple of book references that we can put in the link of the show notes because I get that a lot from people as it relates to kind of their own learning and exploration beyond your own book, The Loving Diet. If you have compassion resources that you're using in your education courses that really speak to you or different kinds of things. I'd love to share that with listeners and we'll put all those in the references and show notes for you. We'll also be sharing what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view. It is the best place to ask questions too. If you've loved the show that we create and produce ourselves, the Patreon is a great way to support us, but so is leaving a review and hitting the follow or subscribe button in the podcast app that you're using. And All you need to do that, because I've heard some questions, is if you scroll down in the app, if you're using iTunes, there'll be some stars, and you can select the stars, and if you actually write a review underneath that, it says write a review, there's a little link, and you put something positive, that will help others find us and trust that their time is worth spent on this podcast, and I sincerely appreciate you doing that. And I want to thank you, Jessica, for joining us and for sharing so much of yourself, for being vulnerable, and really being willing to have this conversation about the journey and growth that you've had. And I want to remind listeners that they can find you at thelovingdiet.com and on Instagram at thelovingdiet. You do work with people one-on-one. You have courses that you've mentioned. All of that can be found on your website, thelovingdiet.com. And listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in, especially if you've listened to both shows 25 and 26. We appreciate your willingness to be open and to grow through your own personal changes. This is the work that you need to do in order to start your healing journey to being your best self. No one can possibly be perfect, but by knowing better, you can do better. And in listening, learning, and unlearning, we all become better versions of ourselves. So thank you so much for joining us, and I'll be back again next week. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks, Stacey. Good to be here. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.